Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Power Play edition. It's Friday, July 29th, and as last week it was the morning after Donald Trump's speech to the Republican Convention, this week the morning after Hillary Clinton's speech at the Democratic Convention. We'll talk about that just a little bit at the end. And my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the Journal's opinion page editor. Today with me in the newsroom studio are provincial affairs reporter Emma Greeny. G'day. City columnist Paula Simons. Good morning, Sarah. Thank you. And deputy editor Kathy Kerr. Hello. Our topics today on the Alberta politics front. The NDP has picked a fight in court with some power companies on Albertans' behalf. We'll talk about what's going on there. We also want to actually look across the border again. Saskatchewan's just coming up all the time now, and I like to think maybe it's just because Emma's here. <laughs> Cause here yeah. But uh, we'll talk about the implications of a spill in the North Saskatchewan River. And then, because we seem to really enjoy beer, there's, we're just going <laughs> to tap back this is in. It, this is to the, me again. Oh. Oh. Tap back oh, in. Oh, Was oh. that in your earlier I draft, Sarah? Oh. Did it come oh. off the top of your head? Oh, uh, <laughs> just, just some of the froth in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about this new uh, Brewers Grant, some of the details that were released this week. So let's start with probably the biggest political story this week, though, which is the issue regarding the NDP's decision to take uh, court action to deal with some issues with the power companies and power contracts. Somebody please tell me what's going on here. I was on a first aid course for a couple days, and I've been trying to keep up on this, but it seems very confusing and complicated. It is. I was camping in the woods, so I'm going to... um and it's over to Paula. Pa- All right. Go, Paula. <laughs> Once upon a time, I audited an MBA class in energy economics so that I would be able to better explain these things. And I would just like to apologize to my professor, Dr. Joseph Doucette, for all the mistakes I'm about to make. But let me try to explain this to you. Back at the dawn of time, Alberta didn't have a publicly owned electricity utility the way a lot of other provinces did. So we weren't like Ontario or Quebec or Saskatchewan or BC. We didn't have a provincial power generation. What we had here were privately owned generators who were very strictly regulated so that it was kind of uh, a cartel, I guess you'd call it, rather than a monopoly. And back when Ralph Klein was premier, he decided that this was not enough competition and he wanted to deregulate the energy market. So the idea was that more people would come in and start producing and selling electricity. The problem being that the legacy power producers had all the infrastructure and all the market share. So people said, well, why would we come in and compete with these giant companies that already have built their power plants and already have all of their customer base? So in order to create some kind of incentive for new competitors to come into the market, they created these power pool arrangements, which I'm going to make this very simple, basically shared the risk so that people didn't have to say, well, I'm going to build a whole, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm Joe Power and I'm going to come build my own power plant and start selling my power. It's pretty tough to come into a market like that. So the idea was to create more competition, particularly on the retail side, by having the power come into the power pool. So think of it as like a big swimming pool full of electricity. Zip, 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 zip. Don't and jump the, in. Yeah, yeah don't jump. So the, yes, but they wanted people to jump in. So they said, okay, we're going to create these power pool arrangements, which are effectively kind of sharing the risk and making it easier for people to enter the market. Okay. Now, so bring us up to 2016. So the problem is that back when they wrote these regulations, they, they originally had a line in that said, you know, you, you sign these contracts and if... And if you become unprofitable, 
then you can sort of back out and say, well, I'm, I'm cashing in my chips. According to the NDP, at the last minute, Enron, which was one of the players at the table, convinced the government of the day to change the, li- to change the language to say, uh, if it becomes more unprofitable, Right. Now, flash forward. The NDP government take over. They want to put a price on carbon. They want to decommission coal-powered plants. And the power companies are saying, oh, wait a minute, because now, A, our profits are already low because of the suppressed economy, and B, you're changing the law. You've changed the law to make us more unprofitable. Therefore, we quit and we want compensation. Pay us out, uh, and, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're leaving the marketplace and is and the, there currently is something in the contracts that would require them to be yeah. paid out yeah. that is that is that is the problem so the ndp are now saying wait a minute that was a bad law it was contrary to public policy it was it was wrong for the government of ralph klein to bring in that law so we are going to court to challenge the province's own law to say that the law itself was illegal, that the law itself was like a backroom deal that was contrary to the interests of Albertans. It's not exactly clear to me mm-hmm. exactly what this is. Mm. So that's me talking for a very long time, and now somebody else gets to that, jump well, in. Well, no, no. And yeah. there's $2 billion at stake here is, is one of the big issues here. And if, if in fact, um, they are able to pull out, that means that the taxpayer essentially is on the hook well, the, for the that. Rate payer. Two, the rate Well, the rate yeah. payer, yes, yeah. is, is on the hook for $2 billion. Um, so through my power bill, basically, that would uh, somehow come back to me? Yes, mm. essentially, yes. Yeesh. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a huge amount so, of money. And uh, and this is the question. Now, there's some question about whether it would actually be $2 billion because they're, according to some of the people who own these PPAs, they're saying that now the province could just make a deal and mitigate that by about half. But that means that they would have to, if they did that, say, okay, we accept that there was nothing wrong with that clause in the first place. Uh, and I don't think they're going to do that. So the, the problem is here, that of course, that in Alberta, we don't have an Enron, right? I mean, Enron blew itself up a long time ago. So who are some of our major power producers? Well, NMAX, that's the city of Calgary. Mm-hmm. Capital Power, that's at arm's length, the city of Edmonton. So, you know, this is why we see Mayor Nahid Nenshi screaming blue murder. It's not just big corporations that could be affected by this. So, I mean, here's the problem. This is either the most genius thing the NDP has ever done to get themselves out of this mess, to say, oh, well, the law was illegal in the first place, or it is simply the stupidest and the craziest because it's fine for a government to say, well, the last government made bad public policy choices. But if corporations can't rely on the law that a government passes in, and puts in place, I mean, they're reneging effectively on a, a kind of a, it's not a legal contract, but a legal, you know, a, a, an understanding of how the power market was going to work at a time when they're already being squeezed. So it's not like I have huge sympathy for these giant power companies, some of which, as we know, have been implicated in, you know, gaming the system. They are not they are not players for whom there's going to be a tremendous amount of public sympathy. And yet, if you have an NDP government that comes in it's ve- and does something like this, it's going to be very, very easy for a party like the Wild Rose to say, is this Venezuela? I mean, do we actually change the rules because the government decides uh, retroactively that the rules are unfair? What are the opposition parties saying? Well, I mean, that's been one of the big things is that um, the NDP has kind of said, well, we didn't know about this clause. Um, Mm. Kind of, no one told us. 
Oh, guys. so like when they were setting the carbon price, they yeah. didn't realize the implications. Yeah, of they didn't realize the implications of this loophole, this this clause, this loophole, this whatever you want to call it. Um, now the PC sent out a press release, of course, so defending their honor, saying, <laughs> um, "You know what, guys? It was there at the Queen's printers all along. All you had to do was go and read the regulations, and you would have known about this particular line." Um, but it does it does seem, uh, in the Wild Rose, uh, just just horrified about the whole thing uh the liberals are also extremely upset um which is kind of it's formed this really interesting band of of merrymakers against the ndp who who are very very upset about what they're doing here um but the big question is why why didn't you know you know why did the government not know if you didn't know if you didn't know why didn't you know and if you did know why are you telling us you didn't know if you did know because it sounds silly to say you didn't know if you did know you know? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, to me, a part of this problem is whether or not it's it's a question of is is this a, a distinct policy issue or is this just terrible politics? I mean, if if it's if they had just came come forward and said we think this policy that the carbon policy is terribly important for this province, we are going to go ahead with it no matter what, and we will fight it out in court what we think was a principle that was abrogated in the first place by the Tories by guaranteeing private business a profit essentially is 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 what that yeah. that clause does and that it was all done you know improperly from the get-go um, that would have been just kind of a pure political play then it got confusing actually when Sarah Hoffman said but we didn't know about the clause to begin with if she hadn't said that, it would have been a pretty straightforward issue from the from the start. And now it's become this side thing about if you knew, if you didn't know, you know, why didn't you know? Were you just not doing your homework? Um, and would you have still instituted the carbon tax had you known? Um, I, I mean, there's all sorts of these sort of side questions yeah. now that have just muddied yeah. the waters politically. Yeah, Kathy's absolutely right. Because if they just said, look, we have to phase out coal. Coal is bad. It's bad in all kinds of ways. And it's going to come it's, with a price. Yeah, it's going to come at a price. And this is the price we have to pay to not be underwater. And this is the price we have to pay to have social license to get our oil, which is more important to market. So no more coal and we'll take what comes. But that's not what they said. And, and the thing that's really perplexing about this, I mean, if they really didn't know, I mean, I don't accept that, you know, it, it's a bit like in, when when the Vorgon constructor ships come in in Douglas Adams, you know, Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Universe, and says, "Say, well, you know, the the plans were on file at your local planning office in Alpha Centauri." <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it is not reasonable to expect that every new Democrat would have read regulations that were written all those years ago, but. They have assistant deputy ministers for that. Is there nobody in the Department of Energy who pointed this out to them? I mean, yeah. if it is true that they did not know this, then either the civil service uh, was colossally guilty of not telling them or didn't tell them on purpose to sabotage them or the fact that they didn't know is simply a lie. And I can't imagine any of these scenarios looking good on anybody. I also no. think it's absolutely fascinating that, I mean, Mark McQuaig Boyd, the energy minister, is where on this file? I mean, Sarah Hoffman. It's true. Yeah. Nowhere. Sarah Nowhere Hoffman is the seen. health minister. Why is she mm-hmm. 
Well, she's a deputy premier. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that yeah. was that was the hat she was wearing when she yeah. did all of yeah. this because they think this is so important. Mm -hmm. This is such an important principle, the whole issue of whether or not the province can institute um, a carbon tax that they felt you had to get the big gun out there. Um, although, yes, it is true. McQuaig Boyd really has been missing in action on a few files, yeah. and this one is a big one. Yeah, yeah. as energy Huge. minister, and, and where Shannon, I mean, Shannon Phillips is no wilting flower yeah. uh, as the environment minister. I just think, I mean, it, it is interesting. Possibly they're on vacation. It's summer. Yeah, but it is mm -hmm. interesting that they sent Sarah Hoffman out there. I mean, Sarah Hoffman is smart. <laughs> Very generous of Sarah. Well, yeah. I throw that out <laughs> there. I mean, Sarah Hoffman is smart and capable and can carry herself in a scrum. But, I mean, being health minister is already a lot of things to have to know. It's true. It is. Okay, well, we will have time to see where this goes. That's the other thing I'm wondering about this. This is not something that's going to no. get resolved in a it's gonna fast way. It's going to drag itself along. And what does that mean and for power producers? And, yeah. and also, what does it mean for the NDP? Because if this could, this has a very, very real potential to blow back in their faces in a in a pretty big way. Yeah, and they, I read that some of our colleagues who have been writing about this have been uh, talking about how they've also been advertising about... Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there's, oh, there's the, been a big full page yeah, ad. And, and, and far be it from me to criticize people who buy bag, big full page ads in newspapers. Please buy more full page ads in our newspaper. I don't think but, you should be advertising but, court challenge. Cost enough, man. Well, it's not they're advertising a lot. They're advertising their explanation you know so they're they're trying to explain to people why they are doing this that's what that's but, why you give interviews i yeah. don't know, but, <laughs> you know yeah, exactly can, can i just can i just say one more thing the the interesting thing about this and and i'm sure that eventually some smart character in the wild rose will figure this out if you wanted to also sink another political party out of all this the tories are hanging out there on a ledge on this because they put that yep. clause in in the first place yep. they guaranteed private business a profit essentially in this and the whole deregulation in 2000 from the get-go was a complete political mess possibly the worst mess that ralph klein created it was poorly done it was inefficient, it caused chaos in the marketplace, it allowed private companies to game the system and take us for a ride. And to me, it's not just the NDP that could go down on this file. I think the Tories have got some splaining to do on this one. I sense there might be some editorials in our future, Kathy, <laughs> on, this, on this subject. I mean, Kathy, <laughs> you, you were business editor at, at the time, weren't you, when some of this was happening? Could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the case, actually. Yeah. The whole thing's really bizarre. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm sure, like I said, we will have this on our agenda in future weeks. So we've got the power companies on one side, and then another business that often comes up on our podcast is the uh, oil and uh, and pipeline business, and we're talking about that again this week for all the wrong reasons. There was a spill in the North Saskatchewan River in Saskatchewan last week, but there's you know national implications on this. Uh, someone want to give a quick rundown on what happened? Big part of that, um, Husky Oil did have a spill out of a pipeline up there. Communities are kind of on a uh, water advisory up there now. So too. it's Prince Albert, right? Well, and yeah. not, not just a water advisory. No. What happened is 250,000 liters of bitumen and that, you know, the stuff they used to dilute the bitumen mm, went into the river. In it went the into river. our river, the North Saskatchewan, about 30 kilometers east of the Alberta border, so just outside Lloydminster. Mm. Um, it's a big spill. They were able to recover about 40% of it, they say. Uh, but it, North Battleford was under 
a, a water rationing because North Battleford, although it draws some water from the river, gets most of its water from groundwater. Prince Albert has been much harder hit. Uh, they were able to, you know, they were racing to build a 30-kilometer pipeline to the South Saskatchewan to get water uh in Edmonton, you'll note, however, uh, we have exactly one source for water, the North Saskatchewan River. Now, this spill is not going to affect us because the river flows east, not west. But I got to thinking, what happens if there's a spill west of us, say mm. in Drayton Valley or Rocky Mountain House or someplace, you know, where there is significant oil infrastructure? We don't actually have a backup plan. Hmm. Oh. But um, for Brad Wool. Brad Wall, right. He, he uh, did come under some criticism there. Um, in Saskatchewan, you may or may not know this, I'm sure you do, Brad Wall is a big proponent of pipelines. Oh, surprise. I guess yeah. that's, yeah. that's news to everybody here. Um, and I know that uh, some of my media colleagues from back there in Saskatchewan, he did receive some flack when there was a KFC buffet about to close in Weyburn. He jumped on Twitter, outraged, and said, everybody jump on board, tweet KFC, and tell them to keep the buffet open. Yeah, when there's a pipeline in a river that, um, you know, spills thousands and thousands of liters of oil, well, that's pretty bad, guys, but, you know, I'm just going to, um, just going to, just going to, you know, just going to... For the first few days, for the first few days of this disaster, I mean, you know, Prince Albert has declared a a state of emergency, uh, and the Premier took... I think longer than some people might have liked to show up and wave the flag. I mean, obviously... And uh, hardly did wave. Yes. I mean, first of yep. all, what he did was thank everyone for trying to help with the cleanup. I'm sorry, but really? I mean, first of all, he didn't, didn't jump on it right off the, the top. And because it does not fit his narrative, he has been extremely careful about what he's saying about Husky. Mm-hmm. The problem is that Husky has changed its story about when it, you know, yeah. what it knew and when well, they knew it. Because... The first days, first few days of coverage suggested that the spill started happening uh, the night before, and they didn't, you know, and and that they if they'd been looking at their pressure gauges, uh, I'm using the wrong terminology mm-hmm. here, but, the, but they had they, their sensors told them that there was something wrong, but they didn't react until the next morning. They didn't know where the and problem Husky, was. Husky has kind of gone back and forth on what they knew and when they knew it. I mean, for Alberta, this has major implications, not just because it raises all kinds of questions about the safety of Edmonton's water supply and the security of Edmonton's water supply. EPCOR uses the North Saskatchewan to supply 60 communities around Edmonton, so it's more than a million people who rely on that. But, you know, Husky and other oil companies are looking for social license to build more pipelines. Stories like this do not resonate well in other communities. Because if you're trying to tell British Columbia, oh, these two pipelines to BC are going to be perfectly safe. It's going to be perfectly fine. We're not going to ruin any of your watershed. Uh, You know, Husky's an Alberta company. This spill happened just outside the Alberta border. Uh, If Husky can't get its stuff together, (laughs) um, you know, pipelines are still safer than any other form of transportation. Right. I mean, this is the equivalent of two rail cars worth of oil that went into the river. So now imagine that you have a big train with more than two rail cars of oil. Uh, the consequences could be much, much greater. Mm-hmm. But if Husky cannot clean up its act, then how do we how do we convince anybody that our pipelines are safe? And when you're talking um, the Husky kind of getting its act together as well, um, in conversations with my Saskatchewan colleagues, there has been some frustration at Husky because they haven't put anyone up to talk about it. 
they've said we're real busy with the cleanup guys um here are some statements that we'll email to you um apparently as well so saskatchewan will often do a phone in with all the media and all of the involved uh, ministries um so they've been doing that husky oil was on apparently the first two and then after some hard questions just decided they weren't going to be on those media calls anymore that Mm. is not the approach that a company should take if you're trying to (laughs) perhaps you know give out information or Mm-hmm. create that social life for, for no, premier mean, notley she was asked about this at the premier's conference last week she was asked about this and she gave an answer that sounded a lot like what you just said paula about pipelines still being the safest mode of transportation kathy i know you feel very strongly about this issue in terms of uh, protecting watersheds versus energy how are you how does this latest spill sit with you you know my phrase Sarah (laughs) and my phrase is water trumps oil it's true every time water trumps oil and and I think it's very clear that uh, Bradwall should have jumped on this right off the the drop and and basically affirmed that principle this is a principle that actually um we we started hearing it a lot in the the final years of Peter Lougheed's life where he basically said Oil is not the issue any longer. Water is the issue. Um, and it's absolutely crucial that our leaders say that, that the safety of water, the freshwater supply in Western Canada and Canada as a whole is possibly the most precious commodity that we have. It's not oil is not the most precious commodity. And yeah, it, it is true that pipelines are, you know, still the safest. But when anything happens, there has to be swift swift action so swift action on the part of husky and there is that question about whether there was swift action but also swift rhetoric i mean i would really hope that in the case of an ndp government that rachel notley would have said had it affected one of her communities would have said something right off the bat very strongly about how important freshwater is and how important it is that the company be held to account that it do its due diligence that if there's any structural issue that can be fixed to prevent anything like this it has to be done immediately all those good words have to be said i'm not hearing them from brad wall Hmm. and it's interesting you know after i wrote my column you know because i care i wrote a column about what are the implications for edmonton what does edmonton have to do in terms of emergency preparedness to protect itself against this kind of eventuality. And the response I had from my readers was to ask why this wasn't getting more national play as a story. And I think that's a very fair question. I think that if this had happened in Ontario or Quebec, uh, it would be a much bigger story. But these are two cities, North Battlefield and Prince Albert, that have had their water supply put in peril. They're First Nations and other smaller communities along that river that rely on the North Saskatchewan. I think these are really important questions because you have to have public faith and public trust in in the quality of our infrastructure. And if you think about how vulnerable the North Saskatchewan River is to pollution and not not just from oil, from agricultural runoff, from all kinds of things, uh, it's a really precious commodity, which Edmonton through EPCOR monetizes to make a lot of money in outlying communities. It's not just a public policy question. It's a, it's a profit thing. Uh, do you allow corporations to despoil the watershed without holding them to account. I hope that Prince Albert has excellent lawyers. I I would say on the flip side of this too, and it is, I'm sure one of the things in the back of Brad Wall's mind is, 
Husky is bread and butter to Lloydminster, mm-hmm. which is a Saskatchewan city as well as an Alberta city, as <laughs> right. we know. It's like bang down the middle. Um, so I, I think that is part of it. There is a bread and butter, a big bread and butter issue, and especially for a premier who wants to grow the oil industry in his own province. Um, so I think that that was also in the back of his mind through all of this. But of course, I would then say again, water trumps oil. Absolutely. We've written <laughs> editorials. You can go back and find editorials that I think may say that very thing. Search yeah. that phrase. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll wrap up on that one. Good stuff from the gallery. But Emma, I promised a beer update. Can you give us a beer oh, minute? Right. Yes. <laughs> oh, of course, I can give you a beer minute. <sighs> Specifically on the beer oh, credit. Oh, about the beer credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so yesterday, the uh, the NDP government did release some details about this uh, this mystery grant that they were having for Alberta brewers. So basically, for brewers who are producing less than 300,000 hectolitres of Alberta-made beer, which probably, that's about what I need in a year, I think. <laughs> I'm um, to how much alligator. That that I have no, I have no I'm like, um, a swimming pool full of electricity? No. <laughs> so it's going to be allocated monthly based on sales volume. Um, CC, the finance minister, was saying he thinks it's going to be about 20 million bucks a year, though in this next year he's estimating that's going to be around 12 million bucks. Um, there are no t- super duper details when it comes to, you know, when you say sales volume, what, what exactly does that mean? It's like, well, so I'm assuming there are still some a little bit more details in there. But of course, Saskatchewan, BC, not getting any of this. But at least maybe now Alberta brewers can kind of think, well, we're going to see how this applies to us. And uh, oh, and now the beer tax, just for all of those keen on beer, mm. if there are others, I don't know. No. Uh, it does kick in on August 1st. Which is, you know, only a couple of days away. So I don't want to cause a panic buy um, because I haven't been to the liquor store yet, but I'm just saying. Well, you know, you have between the time I actually get this posted. You've got a few hours, so you can maybe <laughs> On dash. my bicycle, I'll just load it up <laughs> on my back rack with just cases. No, I'm not really going to do that. I have to say there's a weird thing about the whole thing with the, not just beer, but they have this, the NDP has this bizarre policy of announcing the stick long before they announce the so carrot. Weird. Like, why not just put them both out at the same time? So we hear about the beer tax, and then it takes them several days to say, oh, and we've got this little goodie to balance it yeah. off for our brewers. We're, we've heard a lot about the carbon tax, but we're still waiting to hear the details about the help for homeowners who want to save on their, uh, their power bills. I just think it's really odd. It's like, we're going to put it out there and let you bash away at us for oh, days or weeks or in the case of carbon tax months and months and then we're going to come up with what we're going to do to soften it up i just think i don't get the strategy completely i haven't really uh, thought about it that way but you're absolutely right well maybe it's you know you get the bad news out of the way and then just the good news is coming closer to the next election but it's 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 it has holes holes. Ah, it's just really odd Well, I know that our good stuff from the gallery will be a complete package this week. Paula, would you like to start us <laughs> off? Because you had something that also refers to last night's uh, U.S. political uh, events. Yes, I am. I am a political junkie. I watched all the Republicans last week and really almost all the Democrats this week. I and, watched a football game last night. Does that make me a bad podcast host? No, that <laughs> makes you an excellent former sports editor. Uh, so, I mean, Hillary Clinton's speech last night was very good. It was solid. I mean, if I had been her speech editor... I would have made a few changes. It was a bit too long. It was a bit too detailed. But I think she hit 
a lot of the notes she needed to hit to forge the kind of broad-based coalition that the Democrats are clearly trying to do to go after moderate Republicans. But uh, you know, one thing I would say though is before she even started to speak, somebody should have slipped uh, maybe a little laughing gas into, into Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Oh, like oh, he really right. needed oh, did to he smile. Look, did he look at least oh, once. he looked oh, in it, bed. Yeah, it was just, brutal. Yeah, but oh. you know, so sort of putting a bag over Bernie Sanders' head. I, I thought, I thought, her, I thought her speech. Bag. I thought her speech did what indeed. Her speech did what it needed to do. Her speech did what it needed to do. You know, there were a lot of very fine speeches. Michael Bloomberg's speech the night before, Barack Obama's speech, which was masterful. But the speech that is going to stay with me forever and always is a speech not delivered by a politician, but delivered by a very dignified man named Kazair Khan, whose son died while serving in the U.S. military, uh, whose son died a hero. And he stood there on that stage with his wife in her hijab beside him, um, talking about the sacrifice that their Muslim family had made, that her, that their son had made, that they as parents had made. And at one point, he took out a copy of the Constitution from his breast pocket and said to Donald Trump directly, I don't think you've ever read this. Would you like me to share my copy with you? Hmm. Uh, and he talked about, he, he spoke to Donald Trump directly and he looked into the camera and said, you have sacrificed nothing. Hmm. I'm getting chills just thinking yeah, about it. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna suggest that everybody watch this speech because if you want to understand what is at stake in the American presidential election, don't listen to the politicians, don't listen to the Air Force generals. Watch this speech. Watch the quiet dignity of these two parents who bravely got up in front of that huge audience and an international, you know, I mean, these are not public speakers, these are not professional orators. Uh, and that man's speech had such dignity and passion and power, and it should it should go to the heart of everybody who cares about what's really at stake in this election. That sounds amazing. Definitely we'll watch that on YouTube later. Not watching those football game highlights, that's for sure. Ugh. For my good stuff, I'm going to go back to our earlier conversation about the uh, power arrangements. Our colleagues at the Calgary Herald, uh, Chris Varco and James Wood, have been doing some very, very good reporting on this. Um, some explainer columns for me that helped lay it out in detail so that I get the complications uh so and this is going to be a huge story for alberta like you said huge pocketbook potential so please uh read those columns and stories by chris and james emma uh, yeah. good stuff from you you can be our final one we're gonna let kathy off the hook today okay um so last night i was of course watching the democrat convention as well those balloons guys can i just get a what for the balloons what a lot I of balloons so I, many I, balloons i saw a guy tweeting he had the balloons up to his neck and he oh. said on twitter i am six foot five <laughs> <laughs> so many balloons um but first uh, women woman presidential nominee that's worth a lot of balloons, balloons. Yeah, so many oh tim kane uh, playing with the balloons the, people are making little vines of tim kane <laughs> dancing in the balloons it's so awesome. as i watched all the balloons falling down i was at the same time making um magic wands because it's harry potter's birthday on sunday the 31st of july and i am having a birthday party for harry potter so i'm rereading the entire harry potter series um because i'm a giant nerd uh and happy birthday harry is that a is that a a, a, i have a golden snitch tattooed on my arm that's that for those of you who can't who don't see emma right now it's a great tattoo thank you very much yeah so i am a giant harry potter nerd and it is his birthday so I'm reading the entire Harry Potter series, and I suggest you do the same because, frankly, it's just worth a reread at and least the, eight the, times a and year. And the political resonances are very real. Oh yes, oh yes, absolutely. That's Timeless. what I meant. That's what I meant. Um, <laughs> I'm just rolling my eyes. That's all. 
That's all I'm doing. I know. I, I I think that J.K. Rowling snuck a lot of political allegory into the last books of the series in particular, and I think that in this time of world conflagration, it is an excellent time to reread the last three books of the Harry Potter series and ask what you would do if the ministry fell. And you know what? Probably yes. not a bad idea also to have something just that isn't all about politics sometimes. Sometimes it's, you just need to make magic all, wands. Yes, so, you do. They look really cool, by the way. I can't wait for photos. That is it for this week. Thank you very much, Emma, Paula, and Kathy for joining us. And thank you to videographer Greg Southern for filming our conversation. As always, there'll be a segment or two online at edmontonjournal.com. You can hear previous episodes of the show at that same place, edmontonjournal.com. That's where you want to go. Also through the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show is on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. When you subscribe, it's so easy. As soon as I upload it, it's there for you to listen to. You don't even have to wait for me to tweet about it. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week in the Press Gallery. <laughs>